Public Radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill. We are Radio Catskill, your NPR station for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. The world's largest space telescope launched atop a European Space Agency rocket this morning from South America. The $10 billion James Webb Observatory is intended as the successor to the aging Hubble Space Telescope. It's designed to detect light from the first galaxies and explore our own universe as well as planets orbiting other stars. Scientists say it'll take a month for Webb to reach its destination a million miles away. It's another day of disrupted flights for many Christmas Day travelers. FlightAware.com says more than 870 flights are canceled today. More than 600 are delayed. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports airlines say the Omicron spike is leaving them short-staffed. Delta said it had rerouted and switched out aircraft and crews, but it had exhausted all options to avoid cancellations. Um, Delta, United and Lufthansa all said they just have too many crew members who've called in sick or are in isolation because of COVID-19. Worldwide, more than 2,500 flights have been canceled today. Delays top 4,000. For the third day running, New Jersey posted a record-setting number of COVID cases. Bruce Conviser reports. Saturday's record of more than 15,600 cases was only marginally higher than the day before. But the short-term case volume here and across the country continues to rise sharply. Before this week, New Jersey had not recorded more than 7,000 cases in a single day. But the combination of cold weather, indoor gatherings, and the highly contagious Omicron variant have powered the resurgent virus. The soaring infection rate is also affecting air travel as flight crew workers are falling ill. Airlines have been forced to cancel hundreds of flights across the country, including dozens out of Newark Liberty International Airport. For NPR News, I'm Bruce Convisor in Greenbrook, New Jersey. A shortage of health care in rural America is becoming more acute, and it's hitting Texas especially hard. Jamie Lozano of Texas Tech Public Media reports. In the last decade, 135 rural hospitals have closed across the U.S. Texas has experienced the most, with 24 rural hospital closures since 2005. The problem has a devastating impact to rural communities. Ramona Polk lives in Bowie, Texas, a town that lost their hospital in 2020. It is super scary living in a city with absolutely positively no hospital, no standing ER, no nothing. Texas leads the country when it comes. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, 
Christine San Jose unwraps the spirit of Christmas with the writings of Donald Jan. From her segment Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips highlights chestnut trees. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk Report. Thank you for joining us on Christmas Day on Radio Catskills' locally produced Farm and Country. And country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. What was the star of Bethlehem? We know it led the three wise men to Bethlehem. The wise men were magi, astronomers and astrologists who interpreted meaning behind cosmic events. Anything out of the ordinary was considered an omen, so for the magi to follow the star, it must have been a rare and spectacular event. Looking at historical records of unique astronomical occurrences around the time of Jesus' birth yield several possibilities. Chinese astronomers recorded a bright comet in the constellation Capricorn in 5 BC. This would have been in the southern sky as seen from Jerusalem. But comets are not rare, and they are seen as bad omens, so it probably wasn't a comet. Another possibility is that the star was a nova, or a new star. Novae can appear in the sky and then fade away after several months. Records from the Far East cite a new star in the constellation Aquila in 4 BC. Aquila and the new star would have risen in the south, allowing the Magi to follow it to Bethlehem. The best explanation for the star of Bethlehem is a triple conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn. A triple conjunction is when the two planets come close together in the sky three times over a short period. The two planets coming close together would create a bright light in the sky, and a triple conjunction like this would only occur once every 900 years or so. This would surely get the attention of ancient astronomers and satisfies the criteria of being rare and spectacular. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Magnificent American chestnut trees that once covered wide swaths of eastern forests. Our expert is Dr. William Powell, Director of the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project at SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York. Bill, what strategies are being used to develop blight resistant chestnut trees? Well, there are several strategies to make a blight-resistant tree. One is through hybridization with Asian species because they have some natural resistance, and then trying to backcross those trees to Americans to regenerate the traits of the American chestnut. That's a very difficult path to go because there's many genes that are required to have resistance from the Asian species, but they are making progress. 
what we have done is a more direct approach, and that is to take an American chestnut tree, not change its genome at all, not change the tree, but add to it a gene that would then confer blight resistance. And we found that gene. I found a gene that can actually allow the tree to tolerate the fungus. So, Bill, as I understand it, you had to insert a gene that is a piece of DNA for oxalate oxidase into a living cell from the American chestnut. First of all, where did you get the gene? Yeah, so the gene actually comes from wheat, but the oxalate oxidase is actually a common gene and found in all grains and as well as many other types of plants, such as strawberries. So we picked this gene from wheat just because the one from wheat was the most studied. We could have taken it from another plant also. And it's a very effective gene because what it will do is an enzyme that breaks down the oxalic acid that the fungus throws at the tree, its main weapon that it uses to form a canker. So the problem with that fungus is some kind of an acid there that chews up the tree. Yes. So the fungus attacks the tree through a wound. It will produce these acids, the main one being oxalic acid. That acid actually kills the tree's cells and allows the fungus to grow and feed off those cells. So what the enzyme of this gene does, the oxalate oxidase, it actually targets that acid and breaks it down into two compounds, carbon dioxide and hydrogen peroxide. These are two things that you're probably familiar with. Carbon dioxide is what we breathe out. Trees use this to make sugars. Hydrogen peroxide, you probably put hydrogen peroxide on wounds before. It's something that the tree also uses. It actually uses it to help heal itself, uh, the form of what's called lignin. So two useful compounds from this one deadly toxin. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now you've got the gene, and but now you need to get the cell to transform it into a cell that's resistant. Where did you get those cells? Okay, so some plants, you can actually regenerate whole plants just from leaf tissue and stuff like that. We tried that first and did not work with chestnut. So what we had to do is actually go to um, seed and extract the embryos from the seed and grow those up on a media in a process called tissue culture growth and use those as a starting material to put the gene in. So you actually yeah. started with a chestnut? Yes, we actually start with a chestnut and start with a seed and take the little embryo that's inside that seed and grow them in, in our petri dishes and that's our starting material. Okay, so you grew them in some kind of agar or some kind of a nutrient medium? Yes, so it is uh, an auger, so it's like a gel, and in it, it has all the nutrients that the embryo needs to survive, and it also has hormones in it to allow the embryo to develop just like it would inside the seed. So we can actually grow those, they can actually multiply, and we get lots of embryos, and then we can germinate those embryos just by changing the hormones, and we can regenerate a whole plant from that. Okay, so you've got an embryo, and I gather that they're pretty small. They start with a cell that you can't even see, and maybe you can see the embryos. I'm not sure. But now you have an embryo, and its cells have this tiny change. That's the gene that makes oxalate oxidase, so it's resistant. And how do you get a 100-foot tree from there? Okay, 
So I'm just going to back up just a little bit and tell you how we get that gene into those cells. We don't do it ourselves. We actually use a natural genetic engineer. It's a bacteria. It's called Agabacterium tumefaciens. It's a bacteria that out in nature engineers plants all the time. In fact, there's been studies where they looked at plant genomes and they found that almost 7% of the broadleaf plants have been engineered by this bacteria sometime in their ancestry. So it's a natural genetic engineer. So what we've done is taken this bacteria, put the genes into it, and then put this bacteria on those embryos, and then the bacteria puts the gene into individual cells in those embryos. Then we kill off the bacteria. Uh, we grow those embryos, and embryos will bud off new embryos from single cells. So any bud that comes from those single cells will have all the genes that original cell had. And we can select for those by adding one other gene to it called a antibiotic resistance gene or a selectable marker. And what that does, it only allows the ones that take up the DNA to grow and the other ones will not grow. Okay? And so we grow those up and we test them. We have ways to test for the DNA to make sure it's there using things like PCR. And we end up getting a whole culture where 100% of the cells are containing the oxide oxidase gene. From there, we just go through a series of medias where we start this, these embryos to germinate, just like they would in a seed. And they form shoots eventually. They then put them through different medias to get roots on the bottom. We go through a process called acclimatization so they can get them out of tissue culture into pots. We put them into growth chambers and then into the greenhouse and then finally out into the field. Wow. So when you first saw those roots sprouting out, you must have given a big cheer. Oh, yeah. That's one of the hurdles we had to go through is getting all the different parts of the plant to grow and getting the right medias. Uh, Dr. Maynard used to say that each step was a graduate student project sometime in the past to get, get beyond those hurdles. Yeah, not easy. Now, how big is the biggest one of the plants that you've grown from embryos like that? We have some that are probably about 25 feet tall Whoa. and about five inches diameter, but those are only a, a couple of trees that we have. Most of them are very small, and the reason why is because we are highly regulated by USDA for our field trials, and we can't let them just pollinate and, and open pollen other trees around. We have to actually either bag all the flowers or we have to cut them off. So we can only let the trees get so big before it gets to be impossible to do all that work. So most of our trees are kept small. We can keep them under the permit conditions. Have any of them actually made chestnuts? Absolutely. We have a process, because we can't let the trees get too big in the field, we have a process where we do what's called fast breeding. We take seedlings of our engineered plants, put them in a highlight growth chamber, and within a year we can get them to make pollen, okay? So we can take that pollen, go out to a wild type, uh, what we call a mother tree, and those trees are susceptible to light, so we have a hard time keeping them alive, but we keep them alive long enough to flower, and we then make crosses and get the offspring that way. We've actually gone through up to four generations now. This last year, we got our fourth generation of outcrossing that way from that process. Hmm. So you're talking about pollen that's from a male tree, do you have to make both male and female chestnut trees for the project to work? Well, that's interesting because chestnut has both male and female flowers on the same tree, but they're incompatible so that the male, what's called catkins, 
the Prusus pollen cannot fertilize the burrs, which is the female flower, on the same tree. So you have to have at least two trees to cross-pollinate, but they both make those structures to each individual tree. So we don't have like male trees and female trees. We just have trees that produce both, but you got to make sure you have a different tree pollinating because they're self-compatible. So they have to be a little genetically different for them yes. to pollinate each other. Yes. How can you make sure that these genetically engineered trees are safe to release into the environment? What do you have to do for the regulators? Okay. There's a couple things there. One is just the argument that actually genetic engineering has less risk than traditional breeding because you're actually mixing a lot less genes than you do when you do uh, breeding of two species. Mm-hmm. So you're much more precise. But beyond that, we actually do a lot of testing. We've tested the leaves on insects. We've had both aquatic and terrestrial insects feeding on leaves. We even fed the leaves to uh, wood frog tadpoles to make sure there's no problems with that. We look at things like mycorrhizae, which are the good fungus on the roots of the trees that help the trees survive and see no difference there. We've done things like leaf litter decomposition. We've looked at extensively at the nuts, looked at nutrition of the nuts. We've looked at allergens in the nuts. We've looked at phenolic and, and things like that in the nuts. Again, all those things, no difference between our genetically engineered and the wild types. The only thing difference is that it's tolerant of the blight. And that's because we start with the original tree and don't change it. We just add this gene to it. Hmm. Do you think that once you've got a few trees growing and if the regulators will let you do it, do you think they'll propagate on their own and make forests? Yes, they will. But it's not going to be easy. We call this a century project because chestnuts aren't weeds. They don't just reproduce very quickly like a, like a maple in your yard does or something like that. They grow much slower. And, in fact, some people have done studies on isolated trees out west that are away from the blight, and they figure they, they spread about a mile every 100 years or so. Hmm. Um, so. So not very fast, you know, 100 years to go a mile. The trees have to get very big. They have to be able to produce a lot of nuts because everything likes to eat chestnuts. So you have to actually produce thousands of nuts to have a couple of them germinate and grow into trees. So you have to get a big tree and you have to get lots of trees. And that's one of the studies we're getting ready to do, hopefully, is to find out how many chestnuts you need to plant so they can be self-replicating. And that's something we'll know once we have this deregulated and able to plant those out in, in the fields. How long does it take from an embryo to actually get to a tree? So getting from an embryo, once we confirm that the gene is in there and we grow up a lot of embryos, then we go through the termination process and the shoot multiplication process, all that. It takes about a year. It used to take us uh, about two and a half years, but we've fine-tuned the process. So it's now about a year, maybe a little bit less to get to a, um, we call a plantlet, or at least a plant that's in a pot in the greenhouse, which is ready to go out into the field. Oh, that's amazingly fast. Yeah, so it's only because we've, we've already done all this work for the past 35 years developing these techniques. <laughs> right, so do you think you'll be eating roasted American chestnuts in your lifetime? Uh, definitely, definitely will. As a matter of fact, we are in the regulatory process right now to get them approved. We have to go through three different regulatory agencies. The uh, USDA also oversees our field permits, the EPA, and then also the FDA. We're working with all of them. We've put submissions into each of them. The date we're looking at right now is 2023, but, you know, anything can happen. Sometimes delays come up, but that's the date that we're hoping that we can 
pass them out to the public. We already have what we call holding plots being implanted, so we have trees that will be ready to be distributed once we get permission to. I have to ask, have you ever tasted a roasted American chestnut? I have not tasted um, uh, American chestnuts because those, those nuts are very valuable to us. But I have tasted uh, hybrids from uh, American and Asian crosses. And I've also tasted, of course, European chestnuts. And, and they, they're great. I love them. The European chestnuts you can buy here aren't quite as good as the ones out in Europe. We have a new postdoc in our lab right now who's from Portugal. And she says she's really missing the chestnuts that she eats this time of year. But, uh, yeah, so they're very flavorful nuts, and we hope that they'll eat the American pretty soon. Can you give us an idea what they taste like? Is there another kind of a nut that they resemble? Well, if you eat like the European chestnuts, which are available in your stores now, they're kind of starchy, and they're different than a normal nut in that they don't have a lot of fat in them. So they're going to be sweeter, and sometimes they call them sweet chestnuts. But they're very flavorful. But what I've heard with the American chestnuts have a little bit more oil in them. They have a slightly more what they call buttery flavor to them. So something slightly different than the other chestnuts you can buy. And they say they're, they're very good, and hopefully we'll get those back. Well, that would be wonderful. So thanks to Dr. William Powell, Director of the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project at SUNY Syracuse. Now you know about the efforts being made to restore the grand chestnut forests of the eastern seaboard. This is Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country, wishing you a very happy holiday. Hello, this is Johnny Dollar of Chart Records, and I'm glad you're listening to your favorite country station because there's no better way to spend the holidays. It's Christmas. In the country Stay tuned to country radio I'd like to join everyone here at your favorite station in wishing for you and yours a very Merry Christmas, a happy and prosperous New Year. Here is Christine San Jose reading the words of D.J. Jan. D.J. was our friend from Lackawaxen, Pennsylvania, who passed from this life and left his gifted words. He loved Christmas and each year generously celebrated with children in our community. His purely playful spirit is heard in these words. Christmas is here. Christmas is here. And this is my most favorite night, when Santa will make his grand once-a-year flight. He's headed your way in his big, bright red sleigh to bring you something that will just make your day. The weather may not be good, but he's not to blame, and that's not going to stop him. He will come just the same. The reindeer will guide him. They know just where to go. The weather will not stop them, no matter how much it may snow. It's always been your house that he puts on the top of his list. He just has to make sure that you and your family do not get missed. We understand why you would be one of his main concerns.' 
we think that the best he has got is what you have earned. May your holiday be great. We hope you have fun. Our hope that this year is your very best one. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. The magic of Christmas. There's no reason to worry, no reason to fear. Santa's still coming. That time is near. Don't fuss about the weather. Won't alter a thing. That's the magic of Christmas. It can't stop him. It's that time of year. His work's all done. That time when Santa and his elves have most fun. Now they're loading his sled. And packing it tight, filled with all sorts of goodies for this once-a-year flight, he'll be flying through the sky by the full moon's bright light, then down through the clouds to your house this night. A special smile on his face when he gets to your house, as he slides down your chimney. Just as quiet as a mouse. Your name is right at the top of his list, written so big and so bold, and the reason for this can be easily told. You have been thoughtful, loyal, steadfast, and true to your family and friends. And all others, year through. The true magic of Christmas is in people like you. We wish you the best, and Santa does too. A special sunset. The sun is now setting. And the sky is growing dark. This is a special sunset which has just begun to start. The stars are beginning to show as that darkness closes in, and the stars will grow brighter as midnight comes on in. It brings with it a visitor because it's that time of year. He brings warmth into our hearts for those that we hold dear. He also brings other things that help us feel joy: good times spent with family, friends, great food, and toys. May the warmth that he brings us linger long in our hearts, and we hope that warmth stays with you, and will never depart. May that jolly old soul that will be out flying about this night. Bring you all things needed to make your heart shine bright. Thankful we are for all those that have entered into our life, whether it has been for a lifetime or maybe just for one night. We are so very thankful for what we are about to get. So very thankful for this, a special. Sunset.
We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, Professor Dr. William Powell, Director of the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project at SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill. And remember, it's you that is the gift of Christmas. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Radio Catskill never stops growing and never stops appreciating our relationship with you. Whether it's broadening the world of new listeners or finding new ways to connect with what's happening where you live, your donations make everything we do possible. 